Spark Nation. I'm Jim Wyant, founder of ETF.com and CEO of Spark Network. And this is Pennies from Heaven, a podcast featuring choice insights and lively debate with all the biggest names in the ETF world and beyond. Join us to receive Pennies from Heaven straight from the nattering nabobs of investment. We have a really fun one today. Um, we are going into the world of Motley Fool. Now, I was talking to Dave Nodding about this recently. Dave's here with us. Um, and Motley Fool for both of us occupies this really special place of like early in our investing lives, we love Motley Fool and we felt like there was nothing else out there like it. Um, it was fun, but it was substantive, uh, quality information, um, done in a way that was interesting and cool and fun. And, uh, it's either, there was either fun investing things, which was like internet stuff that was garbage and having us, you know, pointing us toward investing terribly or like dry, boring investing information, which was just dry and boring and not very fun. And Motley Fool was different than that because it was kind of both. And so I'm really excited to, to bring in uh, a team from Motley Fool. So we've got here today, Kelsey Mowry. Um, who's the president of Motley Fool Asset Management, uh, which is separate from Motley Fool Publication. Um, we also have uh, Tony Arsta, who's portfolio manager at Motley Fool Asset Management. Beth Reeser, uh, who's director of investor relations at Motley Fool Asset Management. And we've got the ultimate ETF geek, Dave Nodig, who is now the, what is it, Dave? Financial, Financial futurist. futurist. Financial futurist at Betify, uh, which is an exciting new combination of companies. It employs a lot of people that I know very well now. Um, so the idea of the podcast really was to do a deep dive into a really interesting process that happened at Motley Fool Asset Management, which was they took a lot of traditional mutual funds, I think something like a billion dollars worth and moved them into the ETF structure. And so what I wanted to do, and we can kind of kick off this way and then I'll let Dave take over with all the geeky deep dive discussion. Um, but I guess the first question I would ask is why? So what was the thinking behind making and, and the rationale behind making the switch? And then, and then what were the things that were difficult about it and challenging about it and sort of starting to talk through the process? And then we'll, we'll ask lots of questions about that. So let's start there. Um, and I guess I'll ask Kelsey, um, why the switch to ETFs? What was the rationale and sort of when did the, the thought first come up to, to do that? So it was actually back in 2018 where the, the thought first came up. Uh, we launched our first ETF in, 20, in the early 2018 uh, TMFC, and we saw a lot of early successes with the product, and we just really fell in love with the ETF vehicle. So it came up pretty quickly of, um, is there a process or can we um, convert our current mutual funds and ETFs. And really at the time, uh, I remember back, I was in a, a, a different role uh, at Montley Fool Asset Management and I was really just a, a fly on the wall in a room 
where there's a conversation with lots of lawyers uh, trying to figure out how uh, to make this conversion happen. Uh, and I remember throughout that meeting, hearing a lot of ideas being pitched around. I had that inkling uh, in the back of my head of like, something doesn't sound right. Uh, and I asked the question, um, what do we do um, about our direct shareholders? And they said, oh, do you have a lot? <laughs> and I think at the time, we had a, a little over 7,000 direct shareholders. And Tony uh, wins if I'm correct or incorrect. It, I think it was about a third of our assets um, is were captured there. So uh, I think that about that point, everyone just stood up and, and parted their ways because <laughs> it, just, it just didn't seem like a, a solution for us at the time. So it was something that was what we wanted to do, but it just didn't seem possible. And we didn't want to sort of go, go down that path knowing that we couldn't serve that uh, huge shareholder base at the time. So it was um, last year, really, when uh, we heard about uh, other companies going through with the conversion. Uh, we heard just some conversations internally, and it was about May, um, where someone had, a coworker had asked me, hey, uh, did you see that conversion went through? Can we do that too? Uh, and of course, I started calling our partners um, over at US Bank uh, and with RBB to sort of understand the process and what that would look like for us. And um, no one started screaming or weren't <laughs> afraid. Uh, they really, they had a well-structured plan or at least an idea of how it would work based off of ones that that had gone through so far. So it sounded doable. Um, the timeline um, aligned with with what we were hoping for. Uh, so we had a, a meeting with our uh, our board that June. Uh, and then by December, we had uh, gone through with both the share class consolidation and the billion dollar conversion of our regional funds to ETFs. So let's dig into that. You, you already highlighted, I think, the very first question, which is if you've got 7,000 direct shareholders, I mean, this is old school mutual fund stuff, right? This is like you're literally opening up with forms, sending them off to Putnam or Janus or somebody like that, you know, which we've been doing since the 70s. Um, how did you actually wrestle with that problem? Did all 7,000 people just have to get their money back and then ask them to rebuy it in an ETF? What's the process there? Yeah, so that's a great question. And that was the early on um, idea of what the solution would be, which is what we knew wouldn't work for us. Uh, but when I asked the question again, uh, years later, those, there was a solution in place. Um, and that's where the term um, zombie shareholder account comes to place. So at US Bank, they're able to actually convert um, all of the direct shareholders um, from mutual funds into an ETF. Uh, into the ETF form, but they're in a sort of hold only account until they transfer it out to their brokerage account. So we still have direct um, direct shareholders, um, but they are in sort of that holding cell until they move into their brokerage account. Is, is that basically just sort of like a single purpose custody account that the bank holds sort of on behalf of all those shareholders? And then effectively it would be like if they had shares of Disney locked up in a, in a, in a custody account like that, that you can get them out, but you can't do anything with them once they're in there. Is that the right idea? 
Correct. They're in individual accounts, um, but they're hold only. So they can only transfer. They can't um, add to it uh, and they can't redeem from it. There's no capability um, for them to be able to do anything but transfer in that and so that sort of hold and sell. And what what was the response from investors? Because obviously, I'm sure, you know, there's some class of them you've never been able to actually reach. And there's some who are probably, you know, vocal, either positive or negative against this. What was that interaction with investors like? Sure. So I'll probably take us a sidestep because I don't think I ever answered your first question of, of why. Uh, besides that, uh, we, we really like ETFs. Um, and of course, it digs a lot deeper into that. So um, in identifying it as our preferred vehicle, it was uh, same as what we've heard, I think, all along of the, the, the tax efficiency, um, the cost, um, the ease of entry. And of course, back in the 2018 timeframe, it was the ease of ent entry for the shareholder side. So you don't have those account minimums, um, and which we loved because that ties back to uh, our purpose as, as a company wide. Uh, to help the world, uh, make the world smarter, happy, and richer. But um, once the 6C11 went through, the ease of entry into launching ETS, of course, became a lot easier for us. So for all of those reasons is why we decided to go through with the conversion. Now, the response from it, um, of course, everyone can align, I think, with, with that mentality of ETS being um, just a preferred vehicle. But um, once it gets to sort of the logistics behind it, if you are a direct shareholder, um, it, it, it's not as easy as a process of, of just the vehicle changing in your brokerage account. You have to take action. So I'll probably kick it over to Beth, uh, who was in the weeds on a lot of those communications and, and heard a lot from our shareholders then. Sure. And Dave, to kind of answer your question, at this point, we've had approximately 70% of our direct shareholders actually successfully move their ETF shares into their brokerage accounts. So we are really happy about that. But by, you're right. By number, by number of shareholders, you mean, or at, like, what about assets versus shareholders? I think with regard to assets, that percentage is, um, we, we don't have many total assets left in our zombie accounts. I would say just thinking just off of the top of my head, maybe 10 to 20% of assets mm -hmm. that are still left in zombie accounts. So we, we felt like the, uh, the first couple of months, we learned a lot. Not only did our shareholders learn a lot between the difference of mutual funds and ETFs, we learned some of the obstacles that our shareholders were experiencing, either through our call center or through they reached out via email. And we really did take all of that feedback and turn it around to produce communications that were helpful. For example, um, we heard a lot of feedback that, hey, I'm not able to process this transfer online. So in subsequent communications to shareholders, we said, reach out to your broker. We're finding that this can't be done 100% online. There's a paper component that will help you speed the process up a little bit. We also learned that um, catchphrases that the brokers would find helpful. For example, not only were these ETF conversions new to shareholders, a lot of brokers had not much experience with them too. 
So again, that feedback that we were getting, we would pump back out to our shareholders and say, try using this phrase. You want to transfer in kind. And those types of things were very helpful as well. But above all else, it was listening, taking the feedback in and trying to use that feedback to better the experience for the shareholders that were still in these zombie accounts. Can I pull on that thread a little bit? Because one of the things that I've heard from traditional asset managers who are thinking about this process, one of the concerns I've heard is, well, I actually kind of like my direct shareholder base. I know who they are. I know their addresses. I know I can get in touch with them if I need to. There's a call center. We monitor what they say and sort of use that as a sentiment indicator. And once you're full ETF, you know, there is that sense that you no longer know who your customers are because they're all just held in these, you know, omnibus accounts at Schwab, et cetera. Do you feel like there's any loss of contact with your investor base there? I feel like given how our company, how Motley Fool Asset Management originated, communication and sharing and providing information to shareholders and investors is a key part of our philosophy. So while we may not have their home addresses anymore or their email addresses, we still do have the ability to communicate via our website, via just a whole bunch of modalities like this, where we can really talk to our shareholders and reach them that way. I'd probably also note um, that we have never been traditional in how our shareholders communicate with us or how we communicate with them. Um, I, I remember a, a meeting we had with Broadridge at one point, it, a proxy a long time ago, and they were blown away by how many email addresses we had um, set up for our, our shareholders, how many people at the time were signed up for e-delivery. I think it was in the, like the 90th, 90 percentile for direct and indirect. So although we don't have, of course, uh, mailing addresses, we still have emails of our direct shareholders. We have always in um, prospectuses and annual reports encouraged shareholders to reach out to us and we've created lists off of that so we can send relevant communication and stay in touch and we will continue to do so and we're actually looking at ways to sort of increase um, that communication or that availability if you're a shareholder or if you're just interested in what we have to say. Um, creating constant communication off of that. And I have to imagine that you have a pretty involved uh, user base because I imagine most folks who were investing in the Molly Full 100 sort of knew what that was. They didn't stumble across it because they found the ticker. They were probably reading content at your sister site at the Motley Fool, talking about individual stocks, talking about the methodology that y'all have been using for decades at this point, and the focus on sort of long-term sustainable growth and profitability, et cetera. So they're coming at it, I assume, with an intent to want to invest that way. So that must by just automatically give you a much more engaged shareholder based than somebody who just found a ticker, right? Tony, I'd love to get a sense from you. Uh, you know, you were managing mutual funds. Now you're managing ETFs. Were there any like any bonuses there? Any positive surprises for you? I mean, historically, I've talked to PMs who talk about being able to manage cash differently, being able to have a little bit better visibility on flows. What's that experience been like for you? I think the the great thing for us is that we didn't just do the conversion. That I had some experience with ETFs due to 
uh, launching the Motley Fool 100 index ETF in January of 2018. And then uh, in October of 2018, we launched an actively managed ETF, our, our small cap ETF. Uh, I don't directly manage that one, but I was able to see how the trading works for the, the active product. And really the, the first thing that surprised me is, oh, I can treat this just like a mutual fund in terms of being a portfolio manager that uh, trades in and out of securities. You obviously have the basket creations and you can do in-kind transfers, but I, I didn't have any tools taken away from me that I could use with the mutual funds. Uh, but over time, I also was realizing, yes, you can keep your cash balances lower. Uh, with the mutual funds, you have to worry every day about your subscriptions, redemptions, seeing what that cash balance is. When most of your basket activity is in-kind transfers, you can ratchet down on that cash balance, get closer to actually following the strategy and having the holdings that you'd like to have. Uh, same with position drift. If you get subscriptions, redemptions, cash coming in and out, your position sizing can change a lot when you get in-kind transfers. It just makes the management process, in my mind, a lot easier than what I was dealing with with the mutual funds. And like I said, there's there's really no tools that were taken away that I could have used with the mutual fund. Those all still exist. Um, plus, there's more tools available to me now. And in and, and, and your implementation, because I know this can be different sort of desk to desk, are you doing much work in terms of the creation, redemption, tax loss management? Is that all happening sort of at your fund accountant and, and uh, you know, TA level? So on a regular basis, I don't need to do anything. Uh, the the daily baskets are are pro rata uh, holdings, and then the the shares that are transferred in and out that's handled by the custodian on a uh, the most tax efficient basis. So uh, whatever is best for us is what they'll do. The the part where I can jump in and override anything is if, uh, for example, I can mark anything as cash and move at any time. When we do custom baskets, I can instruct the custodian if there's any lots that I'd like there, but if I don't do anything, they're smart enough to just do the, the most efficient, uh, lots in and out with, with every basket. So really, oh. uh, I don't want to admit how much easier my job is, but it's <laughs> like kind of a little bit slightly easier. Re slightly related question. Maybe this is back to Kelsey. When you were first thinking about the switch to ETFs, did you ever consider the possibility of a share class structure? and figuring out a way to be able to do that? Or was that never even a, a, a thought or an option? It, well, it was actually Tony, uh, who's on the, the call with us now, who brought it up to me right before we made the decision to um, convert the mutual funds to ETFs. Um, he brought it up as an option and I did sort of toss it around to a few places and it just didn't seem like a solution that would work for us. So it was considered, but the uh, conversion route seemed like the best opportunity for us. And of course, um, we were we were looking to be an all ETF company. Yeah, I'm guess guessing you didn't have like a big you know share class being used in retirement plans. I mean, that's always been the one that I think has been the bugaboo for a lot of folks. Did did you have any, or was that just really not even a concern in your shop? I think, unfortunately, unfortunately, it, it wasn't a concern for us. For many years, I've been bothering everyone at the company that would listen. Why can't we have like the Vanguard structure where they have the ETF as a class of, of their mutual funds? And the first feedback I got years ago is that they had a patent on that. And then <laughs> uh, over time, I became more of 
like the regulatory hurdles, like even once that patent expires, the SEC would be asking a lot of tough questions about that. And then, uh, as Kelsey mentioned last May, we saw some other ETF conversions go through. So that at the, at that point, it does become the question of, do we still want to keep this mutual fund class and, uh, 401ks institutions, that's the big thing where the answer would have been yes. So we did make a conscious decision at that point, maybe we're kind of cutting ourselves off here for some potential assets. Um, we don't have a, a traditionally a strong base in institutional assets. We're mostly retail investors, but we're kind of preventing some, some bigger groups from getting into us. Uh, the trade-off there is that over time, we're seeing more and more 401k plans, retirement plans, opening up to ETFs. So that hopefully will improve in the future, but that, that was a, a trade-off that we did have to consciously make. And, uh, given how our, our share structure works, how our, our shareholders are more retail based and the, all the advantages that we know that exist with ETFs, it just felt like it was the right move now, even though you're taking some potential gains off the table, you're opening up so much more. Yeah. I mean, in your case, it sounds like simplicity, right? Why make it more complicated than it needed to be? Um, and, and also, I mean, to your point and, and Jim, I mean, you know, this, that, uh, one of the challenges with that Vanguard patent, even when it expires next year is that you're still not going to be able to do it under 6011. So you're starting with that sort of de novo process for any filing there, unless you've got a really important reason to do it, it seems like it would just be adding a lot of complexity and some cost inevitably. And the, the conversion was certainly complex enough. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to talk a little bit um, just about the sort of the Motley Fool investing ethos, if you will, the sort of thing that's been been driving y'all for so long, um, you know, and, you know, we don't need to get into performance. You guys are very much focused on the long term. You always have been. Um, but, you know, we've had up markets and down markets. The performance on all your stuff looks great in the long term, but it seems like it's been a little bit of a give back this year. What's been the experience as an ETF provider now where you don't necessarily have that direct access to a, you know, a client email address to send something out in this downturn, right? Because there is always this concern people are going to sell at the bottom. They're going to make exactly the wrong moves, right? We're, you know, human beings are terrible market timers uh, as a class and, and historically retail has been the worst of those. So what has been the experience at Molly Fool Asset Management during these sort of ups and downs in terms of how shareholders are, are responding? Yeah, it's, it's been interesting because we did the conversion, uh, pretty much at the market peak. So it's been mostly down, it seems like, um, but yeah, yeah, I mentioned we don't have too many institutional shareholders. It's mostly retail investors, smaller investors, and they are familiar with the Motley Fool ethos. And that's honestly where I got started as well. Before I worked at the company, uh, I was a consumer of the publishing content, uh, I really like the idea of being a long-term business owner as opposed to a stock trader. Um, so that's how I started and I worked at, at the Motley Fool, uh, publishing sister company for a year before we actually launched Motley Fool asset management. And I moved over here. Uh, so that, that ethos of being a business owner, a long-term investor is still important. Uh, we do still have plenty of email addresses and we, we send out communications with, uh, uh to our shareholders kind of hammering home that, that same point that we are still long-term investors. It, it does reduce the visibility to exactly what's happening. I can see the redemptions and creations of baskets, but that's not a direct one-to-one -one comparison to what's actually being traded in the secondary markets. Uh, so it does take some visibility away. Um, 
unrelated, I, I've seen, I, and I've been surprised by like the inflows that continue to things like the ARC funds, uh, as the market's going down, like the actual flows into that fund this year have been impressive, even, even as the total assets decline. And, uh, yeah, you know, so I'm having to look at a lot of other indicators aside from our direct shareholders. I can obviously see what's happening with our net assets and our shares outstanding, but, um, it does take away some of that direct ability. Uh, but in terms of communication, uh, Kelsey and Beth can probably answer this better than I, but we're still doing quite a bit to, to try to stay in contact with, with every shareholder that we have. Yeah. And I, I'll probably just note, um, a, a few roles ago when I was our director of, uh, shareholder experience, I've been with the, um, Montlethal Asset Management for eight years now and in various uh, operational positions, but always have had a pulse on communications with our shareholders, not just direct anyone who wants to reach out to us on our website. Uh, the emails actually go to Beth and I on the call here. So anytime uh, you put a question in, it, we see them. Um, and traditionally or historically, we haven't had a lot of um, performance questions um, or why is the market down? What's going on with the products? It's been very few and far between that we hear that type of feedback. Um, we hear, of course, from our direct shareholders account questions um, that we, of course, send over to our transfer agency. But direct questions about performance or like current market volatility, uh, historically, we haven't heard a lot of it. And I think it, it ties back to what you said of, of thinking about like the ethos of our of our company. What's that interaction like? Because, you know, I, I, we all, we should be very careful, right? You're an asset management business that's different from the publishing business, right? That's in, that business has analysts who are writing individual stock reports and you can subscribe to them in all sorts of different packages. It's been a great model for y'all for decades. Um, but it, uh, obviously investors who are coming at this probably don't have the distinction as clear in their heads as folks like us who, who understand the real legal reasons for those dis distinctions. And you mentioned, you know, Tony, you mentioned ARC, you know, I think we have to highlight the part of their success being sort of radical transparency about what they think about companies, which I imagine people feel like they're getting from the fool as well, because they can go read reports on the companies that are in the Motley Fool 100. And that's the reason they're in the 100 is because of the bullishness of those reports and the analysis that you're doing there. So how do you think about that interaction? Because clearly there's a connection between this content stream of, an, of analysis and research and the investment management process, but they're actually on opposite sides of a wall. So how, how, do, you, how do you manage that set of interactions? And, like, and from a practical perspective, you, know, you mentioned that I think two of your funds are active, right? The mid and the small cap funds. So how, how do investors think about those investment management processes versus what they might be reading about the same companies over on The Fool? Yeah, uh, we actually have three active funds, the mid cap, small cap, as well as the global opportunities fund. Uh, yeah, and, and you're right. A, a lot of potential shareholders and, and members of, of the publishing company don't necessarily get that distinction. Uh, I, I think one of the things that we do, and one of the reasons we do it is because of the restrictions we have on ourselves uh, as an asset manager and not a broker or a company with licensing on, on putting out research reports. A lot of the content that we're producing in Motley Full Asset Management is uh, 
I don't want to call it macro based, but more of like a mindset approach, talking about the portfolio as a whole. We don't really release like multi-page reports on individual holdings in the ETFs because we're not really licensed to do that. So that, um, the, the way we talk to our shareholders is different from the way the publishing company talks about individual companies and individual stocks. So usually when we get questions, we don't get questions about, Hey, why is Netflix, for example, like doing so poorly right now? It's what's going on with the market. Why is my account balance down? Uh, it is the types of questions that you can answer without digging into individual companies. So from my perspective, I'm not really seeing, um, that I well, guess, brand. Might, if I, here, I think, I think maybe like behind the question was, uh, the individual person, like, how do we explain the distinction between the two companies? I think maybe Dave, that's what, what you were leading towards. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think, um, and, and where is that separation there? And I think that's, um, that's probably a really easy one for us to answer that there's a, a complete firewall where we're two separate, um, entities. There of course our sister company, but we, um, act independently. All of our research is all independent to our portfolio managers. But as you mentioned, um, our, our full 100 product, we actually now have three, um, uh, index based products, all that are hosted, uh, the indexes are hosted by our sister company, the Motley Fool. Um, and they're all, um, paired just as similar to TMFC, our full 100, um, back to active, uh, stock recommendations. They all pull from the same universe with different, um, sort of blends to them. Um, but those are all, um, of course, they're passive products that directly track those indices. So even with those, um, there's a complete firewall between it. We have no, um, Tony has no um, availability to dictate what products go in and out of, of those products. Um, so there's, there's an absolute firewall between the firms. Um, that are um, purposeful, of course. We are regulated business. Um, they are not a regulated business. They're under the publishing exemption. So, um, yeah, two two con, uh, completely separate entities. But I think Tony can probably speak to, especially since he comes over from um, our sister company, that mindset that then uh, carries over to our active products that we have. Yeah. And, and I guess that's where I was going in a stumbling manner with my answer is, uh, that ethos and that mindset of investing in companies first, not trading stocks is, is where we go with a lot of our communications and, and what we write to shareholders. Um, and that, that message is, is easy to continuously deliver because that's what we believe and what we actually live every day. I'd love, yeah, I would and, love to, I would love to get into a little bit of the um, the actual process of the, um, changing from mutual funds into ETFs and it, Tony, were you in the, I assume you were in the middle of all that. Yeah, I've, I've been at Motley Falesa management since we launched our first mutual fund. So I've, I've seen everything. I was, I've been the manager of the global opportunities mutual fund first, and now still the ETF. Uh, as well as managing the, the different passive products that we have. So 
uh, I definitely was in the middle of it and I did my best to move off to the side and let uh, people like Kelsey and Beth handle the difficult work. Uh, and I just kind of had to provide oversight from my point of view, making sure that all the holdings we have, our custodians can keep holding for us and that there would be nothing disruptive to me, uh, while also letting everyone else deal with the disruption to shareholders and, and all the other parties involved. Because that's my assumption is that the tough part about the conversion is actually the communication to all the shareholders. I assume that's the hairiest part of the whole thing. Um, so let, so, I mean, then maybe that's a question for Beth in terms of was that process what you expected or what are parts of it that weren't what you expected? What was harder than you thought it would be or easier than you thought it would be, et cetera? I, I think it was a learning process first and foremost. Um, some of the things that were, I, I won't say surprising, but a positive part of the process was how receptive and how adaptable our shareholders were. You know, this was a big change. They had to, our, our direct shareholders, they had to take funds that were with us, go through the whole transfer process and move these new ETF shares into a brokerage account. Some of them may have not had a brokerage account, so that created an additional step for them to tackle as well. And they were very resilient. They were very adaptable and they took the bull by the horns and got a lot of these assets transferred. So that was a really positive thing. I think um, one of the hurdles, you know, of course, was making sure that we provided enough information. Kelsey alluded to earlier that there was first a share class consolidation and then that remaining share class converted to the ETF. The mutual fund to ETF conversion was a one-to-one -one ratio. However, the step prior to that, where the investor share class moved down into the institutional share class, that, con that conversion was based on an NAB. So it just so happened that the NAB of the institutional share class was higher than the investor share class. So through, as investors went through the process, they may have started with higher shares of the investor share class that converted into smaller shares of the institutional share class. Their total asset value was the same, but then when they converted to the ETFs, then that ETF conversion didn't match the original investor share class they had. So there was a bit of a disconnect in there in that there, we needed to clearly articulate, yes, the mutual fund ETF conversion was one-to-one. -one. However, there was a step prior to that where your investor share class converted to institutional shares and you need to double check your market value, not necessarily the number of shares that you have held. So what happened, did, what happened in terms of fee, uh, fee structure, right? Like did anything change, like you said to, from a, um, individual shareholder class to investor share class, presumably the investor share classes were cheaper if you, uh, if you had more money in. And so did that, did that take revenue out when you switched over to the ETF? structure for all the funds what what did the what did the conversion look like in that respect uh so when we moved from 
the consolidated share classes to the ETF. Um, the of course, and ETFs have that unitary fee structure. So we went to just one uh, management fee, and that was a reduction as well. So it ended up being a reduction of fees across all the share classes now into the ETF vehicle. Well, I mean, with, that must have been a bit of a, a pill to swallow, right? Because some of some of that's revenue. Obviously, there's some savings involved in, in converting to the ETF, but I'm going to guess it probably wasn't enough to make up for that loss of some of the revenue on the share classes. We weren't charging um, additional fees. We weren't charging 12v1 fees. Uh, we had a pretty lean fee structure um, on our mutual fund side. So there really wasn't um, that big of a, a, a difference once we moved it over. I think the fact that we never had 12v1 fees made it a little bit easier for us. So you just have the management fee with ETF. There's no operating fees. Frankly, a lot of those fees are eaten up by the the omnibus accounts and the big uh, platforms that you have to get onto as as a mutual fund. And the ETF industry is a little bit different in terms of uh, you still have to make sure your 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 security is tradable on these different brokers, but you're not necessarily paying the same level of fees that you're paying to the big brokers out there that take their cut of all the mutual fund action. So um, I don't have the exact numbers, but the the actual dollar impact to us after accounting for those fees was less than what our overall operating fee structure had been. Got it. So it sounds like in general, efficiency was, was had all the way around for the investors, right. for you all, for the whole process. Were, were there any surprises in terms of now having to work with the exchange itself to like have the ETFs listed? What was that process like? Because that's obviously different than just running a mutual fund. We uh, certainly had the benefit of, uh, given that we had launched, uh, we had existing ETFs. So we had relationships with the LMMs. We had relationships with the various exchanges. So we had a... Um, a when looking back at the whole process, those were easy decisions and easy onboarding that we were able to do uh, with our converted products. We listed them um, with SIBO, who we already had ETFs with. So it was pretty smooth um, from, from that perspective. I don't know that I would have wanted to do this as gung-ho if we hadn't already been uh, launch individual ETFs, doing a conversion when you don't already have existing ETFs would have been an additional hurdle, but those partners can really make your life so much easier. You know, as, as the, you know, the, the complex has grown and you're now, you know, I think well north of over a billion dollars across the, I think six, six ETFs, um, obviously it's starting to attract some more advisor interest, right? It is, it's a, it's a well-known and well-respected brand for certainly a lot of folks in my generation that sort of have literally grown up with the Motley Fool, um, sort of in our back pocket of investment resources, um, you know, in, in thinking about, um, in thinking about that crew of advisors approaching have you had to think about things like capital markets desks and block trades or or is it not quite gotten to that point because that that is something i've also heard that the the sort of servicing required on an etf can be different particularly at the advisor level yeah we haven't had to do any anything that's that's too out of the ordinary um some of the block trading that sort of thing really as i said before the tools that i had available to me as a mutual fund manager are still available plus we get things like being able to do uh, custom baskets. Uh, the big thing I had to learn is how exactly do I go about the process of creating a custom basket? 
uh, talking to the the different uh, APs out there and, and figuring out who to, who to do those baskets with. Uh, that part was a learning curve for me coming from managing a mutual fund. Um, but really it's the fact that you can still do things uh, trading the way you do with a mutual fund, plus you have these additional tools. We'll see what, what troubles we run into in the future as we hopefully grow to multi-billions, but at our current size, um, yeah, I've, I've had no, no issues at all with, uh, making any trades or doing anything we need to do with the funds. I mean, you do run, uh, uh, you know, I think the one non-US fund, the global fund, it, did that create any unique challenges in terms of creation and redemption or having to do cash and loo for certain securities? Is that, is that like a new thing you have to keep track of? Uh, yes. Before doing the conversion, we had some concerns about certain markets, for example, South Korea, where they track uh, the, the trader identification number. So you can't really just do a, a transfer to a different account. Uh, we cleared that up again, thanks to our custodian, really being able to keep the same account numbers that we had with the mutual funds. Uh, but that's a thing to be aware of if you're in certain markets like Korea or the Philippines. We do have cash and loose securities. In addition, with our pro rata daily baskets, the, the APs creating baskets or redeeming can ask us for permission to do cash in lieu of individual holdings. And we'll usually grant that unless. Uh, there's a reason it would be bad for our shareholders. So there are uh, several things in, in countries that are maybe harder to trade in merchant market countries where uh, we end up getting cash into the fund instead of additional securities. Uh, it's all visible to me daily, so it, there's no long-term issues there. But yes, you do need to be aware of cash in lieu, even if you try to not park that in your own baskets, uh, the APs likely will not want to give you shares of thinly traded emerging market stocks if they can avoid they that. They can avoid on, it. Yeah, just the custodial level, I guess, would be would be challenging for some of them. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, and it's been uh, been pretty easy in terms of just, you see everything every day, so there's no, no surprises coming in. Yeah. I mean, to me, this has been really interesting um, to kind of get an inside view of that process. So I will, I will hand you a sort of softball as we move toward wrapping up the podcast, which is what is in the future for Motley Full Asset Management? What, how are you thinking about um, your product set, um, engaging with your clients? Like, what are, you, what are you really excited about going forward? Right now, we are just filled with excitement on growing the products we have. Of course, we launched those two new ETFs um, right at the end of last year. Um, we are building out, Tony's alluded to several several times that we have such a, a strong retail base. We of course wanna branch out and really reach um, the advisor market. So we've been building out our teams to do so. We have um, an external wholesaling team that's growing we just uh, hired our uh, ETF marketing manager um, to, to solely focus on the business. We're working on some uh, monthly newsletters. So a lot coming soon. Um, and we're really looking, we of course just did our rebrand in the fall. Um, we restructured uh, all of our tickers. So there's a lot that we've done and now we're ready to 
to show it off and um, and grow some assets and and really our goal of making uh, Motley Fool Asset Management a, a household name, uh, just like our our sister company. I, I think you're incredibly well positioned for it. Like I said, I think the you know I talk to advisors all the time, uh, particularly those of us who are you know more deeply in Gen X, uh, who sort of grew up with Tom and David in the '90s, uh, you know, teaching us how to trade stocks, teaching us how to think about businesses. So I you know I think there's a there's a very very rapt attention in a certain class of the advisor community. So I think you're you're gonna find that that message is pretty well received. It's my guess. We hope so, and I love to hear that. <laughs> Yeah, thanks so much, everyone. We really appreciate your time today and uh, wish Motley Fool Asset Management best success going forward. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Thank you so thanks much for having us. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. That was fun. You've been listening to the Pains from Heaven podcast with Jim Wire, produced by Spark Network and Karo Hingisa. Music is by Pearl Charles. Take your time. For more music from Pearl Charles, go to pearlcharlesmusic.bandcamp.com. This podcast is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, as well as on sparknetwork.com.